0: Your life and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are if you had one shot,
1: everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis.
0: Life moves pretty fast. The biohacking secret show. In today's episode, I sit down with Naughty Aguilar. Naughty Aguilar is an innovator in the field of human biomechanics, mobility, and functional training. He's the founder of FunctionalPatterns.com and has worked with world-class athletes like UFC fighter Jeremy Stevens and many others. Naughty is on the short list of people I turn to with questions on exercise sciences and exercise physiology. And in today's episode, we cover a wide range of topics, including... Naughty's views on CrossFit, the three most important exercises you're not currently doing, the proper way to do myofascial release and why most people are doing it wrong, small biohacks and lifestyle shifts Naughty has implemented that have produced disproportionately large improvements in performance, and much, much more. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Naughty Aguilar. Hey everyone, I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks, and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. I've followed your stuff for a long time. I'm a big fan. And even back when I was doing more one on one work with clients, I would integrate a lot of your movement patterns that I learned from you into, into the training that I would do with them. So I, I, I have a lot of respect for your work, not just because of your knowledge, but because I see you as one of the few true innovators in this space and um, and a and creator, I guess I should say. Um, what, what are some examples? So you, you're talking about I may be off the mark, but when you're talking about re-making uh, new neural connections and and uh, awakening new biomechanical patterns and things like that, what what's an example of that that you see uh, an area where a lot of people have gone dormant, maybe, and you're able to awaken new parts of the brain and the body with certain movements?
1: What it comes down to, man, it, is like I think uh, functional patterns in general is almost like an anti-establishment concept in the sense that. The way that I see it is that our culture – FP is counterculture in terms of what we do. So uh, we could talk about things like sitting, like sitting influencing and impacting your structure. There's a lot of people who are starting to discuss that. I've been discussing it for a while, Um, and sitting can be that. uh, There could be dietary concerns. Let's say if if you're a person who eats excessive amounts of grains, you could then end up getting bloated – Uh, And that bloating could then create a uh, digestive inflammation. That inflammation could then impede uh, muscle like your transverse abdominus, which is supposed to compress around the spine. And then uh, within time, you decondition the transverse abdominus because its digestive inflammation is there at all times. So let's say if uh, if I have a child who's eating cereal at age three or four and they continue that pattern up until their adulthood, then there's a potential that they could end up – Having biomechanical deficiencies, and they may never lock in this their TVA to its fullest potential. And there's ways of assessing this kind of stuff. So let's say uh, I, I, I forgot where I got the, sur- sur- the source from, but I heard it from an osteopath. I had a couple of osteopaths that uh, that took my course, and they were telling me that uh, that two thirds of people actually are not actually recruiting their TVA, their transverse abdominis. There, that apparently it's dormant when they look it into into cadavers. That they're finding that the majority of people do not have a transverse abdominus; that the brain is barely even recognizing that muscle at all. And so, what I do is I I have uh, movement protocols, assessment tools uh, that you do when you're just standing. Uh, usually, when people take my courses, they kind of they kind of make the assumption they're going to come in and get some workouts in and things of that nature. But it's not until they actually end up uh, not until they end up taking my course that they realize how dormant their inner control of their muscles are. So, for starters. The TBA and the diaphragm seem to be the places that people have the most disconnected, and so, but I, I view the body as uh, anchors. So, let's say if your body doesn't have an anchor through the transverse abdominis or through the through the rib cage, it's usually going to develop an anchor on the quadriceps, on the lumbar spine, on the scalenes the pec minors. It'll form other anchors that uh, that may then make you rigid. And I think the the complication when it comes to functional movement is is learning where to be loose and where to be tight. What needs to be rigid and what needs to be loose? And I think a lot of people have been discussing this in the realm of theory, but I think many have failed in the in the realm of application. And uh, I think that's really where I, I think a functional pattern is kind of bridging the gap in that whole phase where it's like, you know, I can get a person who's had a stroke and get them to actually start walking much better because I, I think I have a better understanding of what needs to remain rigid and what needs to remain loose. So it all really works around the transverse abdominis and the diaphragm, the properly uh, implemented way of going about it. Um, it's a little bit complicated, mainly because it's an ex- its an experience. It's not until you do it that this, like, it just, the switch kind of just goes off and you're like, okay, what the fuck was that? It's usually what happens with people. It's, it's a, the common thing where a, a bunch of doubt grips a person's mind and they start saying, well, what the hell am I doing with my body? What am I kind of doing right? It's like nothing else. Once you feel that connection into your TVA and your diaphragm, and you feel this sense of sturdiness, but looseness, where you're sturdy as a rock, but yet you're still very relaxed. You're very tranquil. Wim Hof says it this way, uh, feeling is understanding, and that's exactly how I go about with functional patterns. I don't think you can learn movement in the realm of philosophy and speaking. I think you have to get into it and actually feel what it is that that you're doing. I put a lot of pictures up of people with scoliosis, and uh, the scoliosis appearing to disappear, at least from the external perspective. If I feel up every one of the vertebral structures, they appear to be more aligned in terms of when I place my thumb on them, and you can see the difference between a scoliosis from a regular one, and that's really just through the institution of intra-abdominal pressure to start everything. So uh, I think the application of that is where it all, that's where it clicks and people are okay, I kind of see what I need to do with my body, if that kind of makes sense.
0: It, it absolutely does. And- where I disagree with you is the fact that you don't think that you're a good speaker. I think that your cueing and verbal description of physical movement patterns is, is excellent. And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this interview. Um, so I, I have to tip my cap to you there. I agree. One of the things that a lot of people struggle with is just even just recruiting their abdominals, let alone the transverse abdominus. What have you found to be, if there was one exercise that someone listening wanted to do at home or like, if it's not something that we can articulate auditorily, a, a video that you can refer them to, because I've seen some of your exercises where you do the diaphragmatic breathing up against the wall and really moving the belly in and out. Is that the type of exercise are we talking about? Is it something more related to what what takes place in a Pilates class? Where, where should someone start? This is the problem,
1: Anthony. All right, man. So... FP is an ever-evolving system. There's constants that I do in my training, and then there's some things that I almost outright fucking ditch, man. And so it's, it's very difficult for me to tell somebody, this is a thing that you have to do. Like, let's say that wall one where you're doing the piston breathing. Right. Yes, it, it can be good. The problem is people already have an issue. Let's say if they've been sitting at a desk for as long as they have, if they dealt with traumas in their body, anybody who tells you that the fascial fabric has nothing to do with emotions, is uh, lying to you. There's actually a direct hand-in-hand correlation between cortisol and fascia, in which where fascia binds whenever there's a cortisol uh, stimulation being uh, secreted in your body. But anyway, your ribs begin to get crushed. Your ribs will get crushed within time. And because of that, you're gonna be inclined to go into kind of a a spinal flexion or even a deep uh, psoas contraction anytime you do some of that piston breathing. So when you see people do that in yoga, when you see them do it, I think in Pilates, I'm not sure if everybody does that in Pilates, when you start doing the, that might then facilitate a deeper kyphosis. And so for myself, I think there can be times where you can be that can be implemented. But then for other, for some people, let's say if somebody has a hyperextension in their T spine, that might be the kind of person that could benefit from that. But somebody who's already have, suffering from an issue of compression at the T spine or the lumbar spine, that might not be the direction that you want to go in terms of your uh, in terms of your approach to addressing your dysfunctions. So with that said, the only constant that I can say that always works most of the time is just simply learning how to stand correctly. And I know that sounds crazy, man. For most people, they're going to look at it and be like, standing? How can that be a workout? But I mean, I can get somebody's heart rate just by standing, by getting, by instituting the proper cues and giving them the proper understanding. I can usually get their heart rate to about 150, 115 to 130 bits, beats per minute just by getting them to stand and execute standing correctly it believe it or not it's an actual skill learning to stand up actually becomes a skill and very few people understand the implications of standing the fact of the matter is that your body is formed to sitting down it it is formed and it's made adaptations to being in this environment so therefore anytime that you that you do anything that takes you out of that environment out of that adaptation you're likely going to uh you're you're going to feel like you're working out. And so if you just learn how to stand and you understand how to address an anterior pelvic shift, a posterior pelvic or anterior pelvic tilt, potentially, or posterior pelvic tilt, if you learn intra-abdominal pressure, these types of things um, are going to be, are going to be what kind of help you get along the path towards activating your core correctly. And now in terms of uh, plugging the the information to the sources of where you could get the info, Uh, the power of posture, the book that I wrote, uh, that, that one goes very, it goes very into very deep detail as to what you need to do to get your posture on deck. It's like 20 bucks. I have it as a PDF on my website and, uh, and it educates you on terms of how to make standing, uh, actual exercise. You have to realize a muscle can concentrically contract from its, uh, from its origin or from its insertion, depending on where you anchor your body from in the first place. If you're anchoring yourself from your lower back, there's going to be a whole chain of tissues that activate around your lower back. So the standing neutral position just ensures that you're anchoring yourself from a stronger fixed point. What working on your posture does is it creates the first fixed point on your body for your body to reassociate tension to. So let's say if you do something like myofascial release and let's say you release your IT band, a lot of times people will say, well, if you release your IT band, it doesn't work. And they're right. Most of the time it doesn't work under the context of how people uh, employ, uh, address muscle dysfunctions and things of that nature. So, yes, there, there is some truth to that. But the, the problem is that the body doesn't just dissipate tension. It doesn't, when you release a muscle on the body, the, t- the tissue doesn't just, the tension doesn't just disappear and float off into the ether. It does, that's not the way that it works. The tissue, that the tension redistributes. What your posture does when you work on your posture, it just ensures that whenever you release the tension off of your IT band that your brain says, okay, now I'm going to associate that that tension is not going to just travel down to my peroneals, and it actually goes up either into my TBA, my gluteus maximus, my diaphragm, but the tension redistributes. So that's your first anchor. It's, it's, your posture is just ensuring that your body, when you retension, it goes to where it's supposed to go.
0: I wanted to ask you about this because I, I borrowed a lot of what you do with myofascial release and, and healing particular aches and pains in the back and the knees. Have you found anything similar? And and if not, I'm going to kind of provide a scenario, and I'd like to hear your opinion. It seems that a lot of tightness in the fascia related to the IT bands seems to affect knee pain, whereas a lot of fascia in the glutes, the piriformis, the QL, and the psoas tends to affect the back. Have you found that when individuals are dealing with low back pain, if, it, if it's in the knees, where do you start? Is it the IT bands? If it's in the back, where do you typically start? Like what's the low-hanging fruit and what is the proper way to do myofascial release? Because I see a lot of people rolling their legs out like, like Play-Doh.
1: Okay. So it's going to sound like I'm bagging on yoga and I'm not because I think there's, there's a, some relevance to it. Everything is relatable. Pain is relatable to the challenges you put on your body. If you, let's say you do yoga your whole life and you never play sports, you might be able to get away with doing yoga for a long time and not be in pain if you never run. But when I look at pain, I only look at it strictly as a contextual thing. I only look at it, okay, if this person is in this position, is this when the pain happens? If they're in this position, is this where the pain happens? So in terms of pain, it's a very difficult thing in terms of when you say that, you know, the the hip flexors are responsible for a, a lower back problem. I wouldn't say that it's the hip. I would say the hip flexors are in part in relation to that. I would say it's more the hamstrings proximal to the gluteal, to the gluteal region where the gluteal fold is are responsible for a lot of lower back problems relative to how I've seen it because everybody's still discussing uh, anterior pelvic tilts and, uh, and a lower dosis, but they don't address the fact that an anterior pelvic shift happens to be much more prominent in people where their pelvis is slightly ahead of their shoulders when they stand. Um, I don't think you can address the hip flexor complex issue unless you get the hamstrings uh, retention. But then you also got to address the hip flexors. The, the problem is that we can't really, we can't look at one structure alone and say that this is going to be the solution for the problem. Because what I found is that people who have lower back problems, usually if I, uh, if I address their IT band, especially at, a, at about a four, 45 degree posterior angle, if I address their IT band, that oftentimes can subside lower back problems very, very quickly as well. So what you're, you're talking about, I, what I see it as, if you're saying that somebody has a tight IT band and they have the tight hip flexor complex and the tight piriformis, I think you're just describing the same problem. It's just yeah. you're describing one problem that's in the body that happens to be present in so many people because they're not engaging their diaphragm, because they're not engaging their T V A more effectively. So – for me, if somebody has a, a knee problem, they have an issue with their hip flexors, blah, 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 blah. If somebody has a lower back problem, they have problems with their IT bend. It's the same problem as far as I'm concerned. In terms of what do you do to address it immediately, it seems that if you get a good IT band release, then it immediately tends to dissipate the, the tension on the knee. But there's a different type of myofascial release that I employ too. In terms of, I, I call it more like a motor point myofascial release. If you go on like my, uh, my Instagram every once in a while I'll post a video of me you know my my elbow drop on somebody's leg and you just see muscles doing this yeah so I attack motor points with what I do so if I attack a motor point on the IT band whether it's on the anterior portions of the IT band slash lateralis fastest lateralis at the upper four, at the upper third of it or whether it's on the posterior side that I get either a release of the knee or the lower back if I just attack those two points so if a person has more of a vertical compression issue Where they're landing, and every single time they land, they're using their spine as a longitudinal spring rather than a transverse coil of the T-spine. If they're getting that vertical compression over and over again, then the odds are I'm going to attack the psoas a lot more than I would be attacking the IT bands for a lower back problem. However, if I see their pelvis kind of swinging back and forth in this fashion this way, I might say that's probably going to be more of an IT band issue influencing the lower back. or if, if If I'm looking at the lower back. Sure. Same thing goes, if I'm looking at a knee problem, I'm looking at those same kinds of structures. So I, it's hard for me to really give a clear answer, man. But I mean, from what you're telling me, if, if these are the things that you're looking at with a person and trying to address their dysfunctions, it seems like you're right on point with it. I think you. I think at any point, you're going to have to address what you were talking about anyway. There's no ways around it. I would just add a few more things in terms of the anterior shifts, uh, the diaphragms, the TBAs, those kind of things need to come along for the ride to ensure that those problems don't come back. And, uh, and I think that's another thing. If we just look at it from myofascial releasing, if the tissue is not reassociating with the, with the myofascial release, you're doing nothing. You're going right back to the same loop. And that's that's an issue that I've had with a lot of people who do physiotherapy, physical therapy, uh, osteopathy, chiropractic, is that they'll make – even with chiropractors who do uh, fascia realignments, when they do the fascia manipulations or they do the the, the spinal manipulations, uh, what, what ends up happening is that they uh, – how would I put it? they do it and then the, the body returns back to its old form right when you what's most what's really important is that when you do the fascia releases that your brain reassociates a new tension so you really have to put put a focus on not just the fascia release but anchoring a new tension on the body through your TVA and diaphragm if I, if i could i guess if i could have this uh this interview have any mantra it would be people need to recruit their TVA and their diaphragm first before fixing anything, worry about that first. And then the fossil releases will kind of come along for the ride. If, if your body's anchored correctly, let me put it this way. I talked to Tom Myers about this a, lo- a while back. I did his, uh, I did his uh, dissection course. I got to hang out with him. I was fortunate enough. I did an interview with him. And what I got from him is uh, I had asked him the, the question of, um, you know, if a person has a forward head posture, they're doing this kind of stuff and they have their, this, uh, this, when I was in the, the dissection course, you could see this this string of fascia happening at their upper trapezius and their uh, and their levator scapula. You would see this strand of fascia, thick uh, strand of fascia, that was holding the head together. It wasn't muscles that were really holding the head upright. And and I asked Tom, I was like, okay, if I fix the posture. If I somehow get the thoracic to extend and I get the diaphragm to expand and get TVA function, do I need to release my upper traps anymore or do I need to release my levator scapula? And the answer I was expecting was the one that he gave me, and he said no because there's no reason for that dysfunction to exist in the first place. We have to, we have, we have to stop thinking about, okay, why am I – we have to think in this regard. Why am I releasing my IT bands in the first place? Why am I releasing my hip flexors in the first place? There is a root cause to this problem to begin with. And it all stems from poor biomechanics. If I don't activate muscles correctly, those fossil distortions are going to return over and over again. And this then ends up extending into your training. In that regard, if if I do everything in a unilateral position, then I'm going I'm going to more than likely create a, a pattern with the body that's not going to facilitate an it band restriction whereas if you look at the industry very often right now most people are doing olympic lifts they're doing gymnastics they're doing a lot of training uh, programs that that don't necessarily respect unilateral positioning and if we look at our biological evolution or biological lineage we are unilateral movers we're supposed to do this we 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 operate we learn to balance on one leg and rotate through our trunk with most of what we do and uh it kind of just comes down to the fact that if you don't change your training If you don't re associate tension to your TVA, it's not going to matter what you do with myofascial release. Myofascial release, as far as I'm concerned now, I don't use it very much anymore. In terms of how much MFR I use, it's probably maybe about 5% of the time. Whereas before I used to spend a good 60, 70% of my time doing myofascial release work with people. And now it's about 5% of the time because I've learned to, to fire muscles in a way that does not facilitate more distortion on the body. If I'm more precise with my muscle activity, there's a, le- a lesser likelihood that I'm going to uh, that I'm going to get these distortions to come back on the body. Sorry, I went off on a big rant or whatever. No, no, I- that,
0: that's that's interesting and that makes sense. And and for for people that are listening that are wondering what is what is unilateral movement, how would you describe that to the listeners?
1: So you have bilateral, bias two bicycle two, and then you have uni unicycle, which is one tire. So really, what you're looking at is that when people move unilaterally, they're doing things on one leg opposed to two legs all the time. And and it's not just about it's not just about moving on one leg. It's this concept called contralateral reciprocation. So if I was going to describe contralateral, if if I reciprocate, because this, I I'm I'm a big student of uh, of uh, of linguistics and uh, semantics. I'm I'm very very much uh, big upon that stuff. And uh, so when I think about the term reciprocate, we're helping each other, right? When I talk about a contralateral reciprocation, I'm talking about an angular reciprocation happening inside the body. So it's not just about training unilaterally. There needs to be a contralateral reciprocation with that unilateral position. If the AOS is not supported by the POS, the anterior oblique sling on the front side of the body is not supported by the posterior oblique sling contralaterally on the body, and then we don't really get a good stability. So it's a combination of things. One thing is being unilateral, and then there's another concept called contralateral reciprocation. It's kind of training the body in an X-like fashion as you're doing the training. Right. So, so, so it's unilateral is one, and it, the bilateral is two, and then contralateral reciprocation. Rather than training the body in a bilateral fashion, we're going to go contralateral, angularly. Does sure. that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So w- would it be possible description of that being like, a unilateral movement engaging the trans, like across the transverse plane where there's like rotations on one leg maybe you're maybe you're um, you're doing like a speed skater jump like a lateral jump where you then reach across with your right hand and touch the outside of the ground on the outside of your left foot then you do a lateral jump you land on your right foot reach across with your left hand touch yes, the ground so on the outside right. of your right foot something like that while yes, keeping intra-abdominal exactly, pressure Yes
1: that that would be a very good movement I would define that as being a very, very good movement because at that point, you, you're you're stimulating the fascia, you're stimulating the musculature in the way that uh, respects our three to four million year evolutionary process. So we adapted from as from tree dwellers. I mean, if you compare the feet of chimpanzees to the feet of human beings, they're very different in that regard. Where you have you know chimps, they have long fingers. It's almost like they have a like their feet are are almost like another set of hands that they have, where ours is, you can clearly see they're meant for, you know, land dwelling. We're supposed to do that kind of stuff. And from what you told me, you were talking about moving in the frontal plane and incorporating some rotation. And, uh, and then balancing on your feet going unilateral, I mean, that's as good as it would probably get. That's a very, very practical movement as far as I'm concerned. It transfers to a lot of things. Um, you know, you're getting that little give of the SI joint. You're getting that little movement going back and forth. You're getting slight hiking of the hips. You're stimulating the, the lateral fascia on your body. You're stimulating the rotational fascia on the body. Those are the kinds of movements that I think are very, very respecting towards human biomechanics where a lot of what you're seeing today is uh, are people doing like a gymnastics type movements, a lot of hanging going on. Although it's not the worst thing in the world to do every once in a while, we got to begin to question whether if you're like if you're doing something like a pull up or trying to do a one arm handstand or things along those lines, we got to ask ourselves, does that respect human biomechanics? Does that respect us as a human organism? Are you? Are you essentially asking a fish to go out on the land, out on land, and try and walk on land? Are you trying to get an organism to do something that is not supposed to be doing? Whereas sure. what you mentioned to me is when you're when you're moving on your one leg and you're moving back and forth like that. That's exactly what we would probably need to do before you throw something. You have to press off your leg laterally like that before you potentiate a transverse plane movement to throw a spear potentially.
0: Awesome, awesome. I, I you know, what we're seeing a lot of, especially with some of the the popular. Workout programs today is these root motor patterns that are just executed over and over again, and I think there's almost an atrophy of the brain that takes place because we're not learning anything new. We're just increasing load, increasing our risk of injury. Um, you know, you, you got you got people banging out a hundred burpees, and 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 it's not engaging them cognitively. What would you say are three movements? or patterns that someone's starting out that is hearing all of this and they're agreeing with, with what you're saying. They know that their training needs to be adjusted. They don't know where to start.
1: Okay, so I would say it would be these three, a, a transverse twist. I, ha- I have these on my YouTube channel. You're just going to have to look around for it because I, I have them free on my on my website and my YouTube channel and anywhere. So if you go to functionalpatterns.com, you'll be able to find them. You're just going to have to look for them a little bit. I also have a ton of FP practitioners who who put these movements up too, so you can find them all over YouTube. So if you – there's a transverse twist that's going to cover twisting motions, right? So it's getting uh, external femoral rotations, internal femoral rotations, thoracic rotations, engagement of the pecs, the sling systems. Those are going to stimulate the, the, the fascias in terms of the transverse. You're going to get a little frontal plane movement on that. I would say that the transverse twist would be that. Um, then I would go a contralateral step pull. Is, is
0: that is that what you what? The, there's a video of you doing something with Jeremy Stevens, where uh, the MMA fighter, where you're holding um, an Olympic bar at waist level and slowly twisting from side oh, to hell side. No.
1: That's that's not a place to start, bro. You might fucking blow your low, lower back if you do something like that without preparation. <laughs> don't do that. Okay. Not, don't do that immediately. That's something to work towards. Do you really? That's a, that's a very dangerous movement if it's not properly executed. That, that takes a lot of conditioning before you have to really condition your TVA and your diaphragm before you do that. And then your posterior chain, you have to understand how to use hip extension. That would definitely not be one of them to do right now. Not right, not right now, but now if you do a transverse, but this is after somebody's worked on their posture, I'm speaking hypothetically after somebody's worked on their posture, I would say a transverse twist would be a, a great place to move towards. That's just grabbing a pulley. It's grabbing a cable machine. And just twisting across, but that's only if you are doing it. And you're, res- I explain all this stuff on the YouTube channel. So if you guys just go there, you'll be able to see it. But uh, the the there's force vectors that have to be incorporated. Uh, the transverse twists the way the way that we do it, there's specifics in terms of loading the slings. I explain all this stuff on the video in terms of loading the slings from the ground up, from the top down. I discuss all that stuff on the videos. That would be one exercise, but definitely not the barbell. Not quite yet. That thing is brutal. I have a, I have a collegiate football players that I put that on and the first times they do it, they can only, they can only last about maybe five reps going forward, five reps going back before they die. Like that video, where you saw Jeremy Stevens doing it, I mean, that was probably after his 10th session with me doing that. That exercise is very brutal. It's very difficult to execute. And that's one thing I'll say about FP movements. They don't Appear to look like that, that difficult until you actually uh, get in there and, and, uh, and play with them a little bit. Then you're like, okay, this, is, this seems to be a little more, more challenging than what I was anticipating. But um, definitely not that exercise. But, so the first one would be the transverse twist. The next one would be an exercise I call the contralateral step press. So if, if you can envision yourself walking, the, the mechanics of walking, where let's say if you take a step forward and then you pull off the ground and then pull yourself forward. Uh, that leg would be coming backward if, if that leg would, I wish I could stand up and show you, but I can't cause I have my phone in my hand. Sure. Um, but this, this exercise is another one that actually replicates the gait dynamics when you're moving forward. It's almost like the pushing phase that you get out of your, uh, out of your trunk and the pulling phase that you get out of one leg. It's called a contralateral step pull. That one activates your anterior oblique sling through your gait cycle, through your running, through your walking. And then what I would do then after that would be a contralateral stepping pull. Which would be working the posterior oblique sling. It's, it's, so you have a line of fascia on the front side that goes this way from your external oblique to your internal oblique to your adductor. Then you've got another line that would, on the back side of the body, that's called the posterior oblique sling that would run this way. And that would be called the posterior oblique sling. One of them's gonna be like a step where you're kind of pressing like this and you're stepping forward. And then the other one's going to be a pull where you're coming from there and then pulling backwards. Um, but if you look those up, if you look, if you just go on a, on, on YouTube and you type in contralateral step press or contralateral step pull or transverse twist functional patterns, if you follow it with something like that, I bet you'll find something. We got literally thousands of videos on YouTube right now, thousands of them. And these movements, even if they're fairly well executed, they will, they will bring about new, they'll fire new neural connections in the brain that you wouldn't normally get. And I think that's a, that's an important thing too. When you, when you were discussing in relation to that, that when you start just repeating the same exercises over and over again, People need to realize that that's inhibiting. That's creating a stress reaction. That's stimulating certain parts of the brain. And, and scientists just conducted recently that traditional training opposed to running. Uh, it actually, it's uh, it, it, with lab rats. It wound up making them less intelligent than the lab rats that were uh, that were actually the ones that just focused on running. So I think there's something to that. Whereas, like, if you're just constantly thinking about getting stronger and building mass and just doing that, that eventually will have diminishing returns where your brain is going to be sacrificed to that. The way I see it is if if your metabolism is focused on having these huge freaking muscles or it's just focused on constantly having to burn this sugar rather than potentially burning some ketones and things like that at times, then your brain is probably not going to be functioning as well. So I think these movements, the ones that I just described to you are going to help not only get you to move better, but they hopefully should help you promote better brain function because they'll make you more adaptable to stress as well. That's the intent behind the exercises, at least.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree, and it's it seems like there is some practical appl- application and uh, truth behind the stereotype of meatheads being less intelligent if they're just constantly working on those root motor patterns. And and one thing too is the <laughs> the brain-derived neurotropic factor. That you you get from running and some of these cardiovascular exercises that doesn't come from the strictly um, anaerobic work that a lot of people do with long rest periods. What, yes, yeah, totally. Your, uh, yeah, go ahead. What's what's your diet like? How do you eat? My
1: diet. I don't really care too much about a diet. My 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 perceptions are that uh, I think diets the most overrated facet of fitness. People say that you can't work out of a uh, out of a bad diet. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. I think. My, my perception is this, man. It's like we're all dealing with addictions in life. We're all dealing with addictions in some way. Some people use exercises as a way to cope with their existence. Uh, some people use food as a way to cope with their existence. Some people use drugs in the way that they would. people would talk about drugs being what they are. Um, my perception is that food, when people eat like shit, is a result of a poor value system or even beyond that. It's a result of an imbalanced body. Um, I think your body will tell you where, what you need to eat once you find your structure where it needs to be and once you address your stress associations. Um, I think if you're responding poorly to stress because your scalings are like this all the time or your pecs are always active all the time or your upper abdominals are constantly yanking down on your ribcage and it's creating an anxiety and that's making you burn more sugar as a result, you're going to tend to create crappy food. and My concern is how do I get a person – To not crave crappy food, how do I eliminate the conditions making a person want to eat shitty foods like grains and things along those lines? Because at the end of the day, man, diet is not that complicated. You don't need to read a book about diet to find out what the fuck you're supposed to be eating. Because most people are saying the same things: don't eat processed foods. Don't eat processed foods if it's if it's gone through a whole system where if it's in a box, don't eat it. I think everybody understands that if it's in a box, you shouldn't eat it. Right? Uh, Eat as many. I say stay away from grains. Eating grains to me makes no sense at all, evolutionarily speaking, because no humans, from what I know prior to what they say is 12,000 years ago, no human beings prior to that were really eating any grains. From my personal perception working with people, trying to get their TVA to work, the grains were a barrier towards getting a person to activate their TVA. So in terms of my own practical experience. People who eat grains typically cannot activate their TVA effectively. It's the blockage. When you've got a balloon growing inside your intestinal tract, it's hard to retract your TVA and open your ribs. Then what are you going to use? Probably your psoas, the muscles behind the organs, behind the balloon. That's what you're going to use for your stability. So I think grains have to be eliminated. In terms of your meat consumption to vegetable consumption, I think that's completely related to your genetics. And the only way that you can find out what your genetics need and what they want is if you balance your body. If you balance your body, you balance your stress responses, your body is going to tell you what the hell you you need to do. And I think that's, that's the point here, is that you develop an intelligence, a relationship with your body that tells you, you know what, I'm tired of coping. I don't need to cope on my life anymore. I can just sit here, and exist and be fine with that. I don't need drugs. I don't need food. I don't need anything I can just sit here by myself in silence and be completely okay with myself without having to put myself in a meditative trance You eliminate these uh, these barriers in your mind You don't have to worry about diet anymore. Like my parents are the prime example of this man. My, my mom She eats like garbage. My dad eats like garbage, but the difference we and my, I think we have pretty good genetics in my family, but uh, my dad's eats much worse than my mother does, and my dad's better off because of it. But my dad's a super chill dude. He doesn't. Re- he rarely ever gets mad about anything. He's always very relaxed. And that fucking guy's eating like donuts almost every single day, man. Yeah. So I, I look at. I can't help but look at somebody like my dad and think, you know what? It's like this guy's in his 70s, and he's uh, and he's doing pretty well for himself, even eating all that garbage. Of course, should he be eating better? There's no doubt in my mind he should be eating better than what he is, and that it would give him benefit. But with that said, uh, in, in regards to diet, I think it's the most overrated aspect of what's involved in the fitness industry. Everybody harps on it. I'm more concerned why, as to why a person is – why is, does a person want to eat shit in the first place instead of quit telling them to, to eat something? When I train my people, I can get them away from a bad diet. But the first thing that I do is I top – I don't tell them anything about a diet. I forget about it and I say – I'm not even going to discuss diet with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to help you engage your TVA. I'm going to change your movement. You're going to feel better because now you understand what this inner muscular power that very few people know about are feeling. You're going to feel that. And then within time we're going to progress through our sessions. And then there's going to come a point where the, the, the myofascial restrictions from that shitty diet are going to come in. I'm like, look, you see how your belly's still hanging out a little bit. And every time that you retract your navel, it becomes a little bit more laborious to do that. That's those fucking sandwiches you're eating. That's the grains that you're eating. That's – this is your problem right here. And then they're like, oh. But since their stress response has already be, become accustomed to the way that I modified it through the breathing that it exercises, through the TBA, through the slings, they come out feeling way more relaxed, way more tranquil with everything they do in their life. Their brain doesn't see it as, oh, this is going to become a chore. Now i got to put it, get myself on a diet. They see it as okay. This is just a barrier that I got to move past. And since I'm less impulsive than I was than I was when I first trained with you, it's not like it's such a challenge to uh, to eat well now. Now my body kind of wants it. I understand it. It's not just about some stupid vanity or whatever. It's like it's inhibiting my movement. It's inhibiting me as a human being. Now it's time to get rid of this shit because I've addressed. Because I put them in a situation where they can make a more informed decision about their body. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And one of the other things that Chris Kresser pointed out, well, he was the one that brought the study to, to my attention, but grains for a lot of people actually kill or at least cause dysfunction in the nerves in our gut. And, and, and there's a lot of new emerging research on that so that you get decreased peristalsis, you get an accumulation of toxins and all of that also probably plays a role in the firing of, of the TVA and, uh, and, and, and some of these other things. Um, totally, dude.
1: Oh, I, I mean, from my practical experience, dude, in terms of what I've had to deal with in terms of training everybody, it seems to be the common theme that that inflammation in the gut, that inflammation in the intestines. Completely impairs it, so I think the, the there's a there's a direct correlation between those two. And I've I've read some of his his blog posts, and I think what he's doing is fucking awesome too.
0: Is there anything else besides grains? You just do, is that is that your focus? Is there anything else? We're like
1: some, some people don't respond to dairy very well, and I I it, appear, it appears that I don't respond to dairy so well with certain types of cheese. If I eat yogurt, it tends to hurt me a little bit more. But yeah. man, I don't i I'd say paleo is for the most part right, and the ketogenic diet is for the most part right. If you look at Ray Pete. I'd say you can look at listen to Ray Pete, and uh, I think they all have relevance in terms of what it is. I just say get your nervous system where it needs to be, and stay away from processed shit, and you're good. Yeah. I, I, I my perception is it's like I've known people who followed the most strict, strict, strict diet on point that were some of the most unhealthy people I ever met in my entire life. Where yeah. they were concerned about consuming any toxin, they would literally have the most expensive water filters. They would have like everything had to be like. Local organically grown everything had to be perfect and these were some of the most unhealthy pale skinned people you would ever meet in your entire life They were completely fucked up. So like I would look at these people and I'm like, okay You're eating a nutritious diet, but man, I don't and that's the problem I think the issue is since our culture is so out of line with the way nature has has pretty much Created life. I think it's hard for us to really even determine what a healthy human being is like I remember a few years back I was uh, doing I had an issue with my uh, with my shoulders. This is about ten, years, about nine, ten years ago. I had an issue with my shoulders, and uh, I would have nagging pain. And this is kind of what got me into doing doing the training that I do. Was it and, was it uh, right
0: on the front, kind of where your shoulder meets your pec?
1: It was like right here, dude. It was here, and anytime I'd lift my shoulder up like this, maybe about that high, it would start burning. Like I would just start, it would start burning because the muscles were fatiguing, and so it was my rotator cuff compensating. And back in the day, I didn't know anything, bro. I was a I was a full-blown meathead when I first started in the industry. During that time I wanted my culminated shoulder problems. I started that was actually I started culminating my shoulder problems mainly when I stopped the bodybuilding and I started doing functional training. Functional training is actually what hurt my shoulders. It wasn't the bodybuilding because I wasn't lifting heavy and but as soon as I started integrating, I started finding that there was I was having pattern overloads. And so I finally I uh, managed to do some some MFR. I went to a massage therapist. Uh, her name was Laura Vedra, and she helped me. She kind of painted the picture for me in terms of reciprocal inhibition. I then started thinking about that with my stretching and my muscle activations, and it helped. It helped. There were some specific things I had to figure out myomechanically, but then I figured those things out uh, in terms of myofascial release, what kinds of stretches I needed. And then finally, I wound up uh, fixing my shoulder problems. I had no more shoulder pain, and the feeling that I got afterwards was, was one of the most revealing things that I ever got ever with my body because I felt so good after I was thinking I was already feeling good that I then questioned, okay, how fucked up am I really? How used to feeling like crap am I really with my biomechanics, with my physiology, emotionally speaking? It kinda of, it completely shifted it because health is a relative term. Uh health health is not a there's there's no singular way, there's no Unified way to describe health at this point. You know, you can have your cholesterol levels and you know your blood pressure and all that. And you can still die from a heart attack anyway. So yeah. it's like that's not that's not going to reveal any. That's not revealing every part of the story. So most people's conceptions as to what a healthy individual they aren't even relevant as far as I'm concerned. I think it's all relative, and I think what I've been trying to work on since that time, I, I kind of that that awake that kind of a that epiphany that I had at that time is how do I get myself to feel better than what I'm at and uh, and Am I really healthy, or am I, you know, am I still like a, am I still a compensated version of myself? That's what it is. It's just a compensated version of me. And My question is, my my perceptions are is how much longer can a human being live if you respect these uh, these facets, if you respect these concepts, and uh, is a human being designed to live much longer than what we've uh, than we what we think? If we can build these symmetries, if we can take away these stress associations, and if we can optimize the movement. Of a human body, and uh, that has nothing to do with diet. Yeah, that's as far. As we're concerned. Of course, there's a diet you have to follow. Diet is of, of absolute importance. I just mentioned grains and the importance that, that they or the the negative, uh, you know, the negative impacts of grains. Of course, diet matters. There's no ways around it. You can't you can't eat shit. There's just no ways around it. You got to eat healthy food. I think if if people could accept that we're not a particularly good looking organism, that uh, you know, if we look at especially life,
0: especially men.
1: <laughs> Jeez, I mean, come on, bro. But you know, women—women women aren't aren't even that much better either, bro. They're just as fucked as we are. I mean, think about it this way: if you look at a cheetah, cheetahs look—that's am- a beautiful animal. If you look at a, a leopard, that's a beautiful animal. You don't need to put paint on its face. You don't need to shave any parts of it. It's symmetrical. It's a beautiful animal. But then when you look at humans, my God, we got face here. We got facial hair here, here. What has nature carved out? It carved out a brain this fucking amazing prefrontal cortex that we have, this amazing brain that we have, and we barely even focus on using that damn thing. and we barely even focus on trying to optimize what that thing is. And I, th- I think with functional patterns, that's my primary focus. The movement is secondary. I don't give a shit about movement. My perception is my perception is that is your brain op- is it operating in a, in a way that you know that makes you more intelligent and helps you navigate this reality a little bit better? And I think I'm, I'm, for myself, I think I'm a walking example of that. If you look at my videos from maybe uh, three, four years ago, I'm not, not, like I told you before, I don't think I'm a great speaker now, but I was a way worse speaker then than than what I am now, for sure. If you look back to my older videos, I think I'm the best uh, example of what functional patterns can do for a human body, how the stress associations can change, because I just feel my own evolution happening, where where I actually... Can't have a, a, a conversation with somebody and still I can communicate myself better. And I think that's an extension of my stress responses changing and me maturing my brain rather than doing the exact opposite, rather than doing the crazy calisthenics pull-ups or the heavy Olympic lifting or whatever, which, I, which is, you know, downgrading my brain. I'm upgrading my brain because that's my intention in the first place.
0: I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about how what you don't eat is actually more important than what you do eat. Because if you're, just, if you're just eating, if you're staying away, you figure out, take 28 days, figure out what are the foods that you don't do so well with. Figure out what are the immunogenic and allergenic foods for you because we're all a little bit different. You may do great with eggs. I may not do, do so well with eggs. Uh, somebody else may do all right with organic, grass-fed, raw dairy. I may not do so well with that. And you, you take 28 days, yeah. cut all the stuff that we know can be problematic reintroduce one by one, see how you feel. And if you feel good, then keep it. If you don't stay away from it more often than not. And and I, and I think you're right. That you, sounds off to me. you don't, you don't need to overcome uh, over, overanalyze the diet component. What you mentioned, feeling good and, and kind of like this constant improvement towards always trying to feel a little bit better. What are some big quantum shifts that took place for you that in, in improving that? some modifications you made that produced disproportionately large improvements in how you felt, energy, cognitive function? Uh,
1: There was a book that I read called The Tyranny of Words. It's about general semantics, which, I mean, obviously doesn't seem like it's directly correlated to what's going on. I think what really got me to – that's one of them. There's there's some other things too. Obviously the TBA learning, the day I learned to activate my TBA, I I remember that day. uh, That was also another big one, the diaphragm. I discussed that which I've already kind of gone into it, but for the sake of kind of mixing it up a little bit more, I'll say that the Tyranny of Words is a book that I read. Uh, it helped me kind of uh, codify my language to be more responsible with the words that I use. And I, I kind of became, I came to realize that there's certain words that I would use there's certain words other people would use uh, that, kind of were like the alert signals. Okay, stay away from this person, stay away from that person because they used a particular type of word or they, they conducted their sentences that way. And I think a lot of uh, your stress responses are relatable to the dialogue that you have on a daily basis. If you tend to... I'm I'm, I'm a no-nonsense kind of guy, man. I'm not good with bullshit. I, I, if, if I deal with the, my general surroundings, I'm very, very particular, particular about the people that I keep around me. And uh, I think me finding the right kinds of people is really is really important. And I think this this is one of the most underrated aspects of uh, life where people don't think about their language so often. Uh, when I think about uh, the tyranny of words, or even the man who influenced the tyranny of words that kind of recommended, I mean, it was uh, Jock Fresco. not sure if you ever heard a name by him. Jock Fresco, a uh, pretty anti-establishment dude, but uh, he, they, they discuss how language itself is not um, – And the way that we use it, the dictionary version of language is not very good. It's not very descriptive of what's going on. Uh, It's not very scientific. Whereas, like, if you look at mathematics, it's uniform. Most mathematicians, most engineers can communicate with each other quite well. Whereas you and I, we have challenges with that. You may use the word love or freedom. Or, you know, if you use the word freedom, my perception of the term freedom could be be different than yours. You may think that choosing from a thousand different types of cereal maybe some sense of freedom my perception of freedom is i get to walk on the walls i get to transcend dimensions of time and space i get to know everything and there's which is impossible to do that um i get i don't have my my idea of freedom is that time is not a barrier to me learning new things i don't have to put time into things that's my version of freedom it's a subjective interpretation of the word i think when you learn to objectify your language and you understand what you are actually saying it, uh, it liberates you. It's one of the most liberating things that you can have. And you want to talk about giving yourself energy. Uh, it gives you all kinds of energy because you don't waste energy on the wrong kinds of people using subjective useless dialogue that uh, that doesn't produce anything. My perception is what does your language produce? What does your life produce? And if the language, the way that you communicate yourself is not doing that, uh, then you're going to have all kinds of hormonal problems, all kinds of digestive issues because, the people that you're talking to on a daily basis are going to give you that because you're constantly having disagreements for, without understanding why. Um, I remember I was, in, I was in Spain, and I ran a course out there, and I had one of a – this was last summer, and he. this was a very revealing thing. I'm not I'm not sure of the exact historical context, but I'll repeat the story the best that I can. But he was discussing how there was a – it was World War One and they were for some reason sending horses across the, the battlefield – I think it was with resources or with bombs. I don't know what it was, but they were sending them off. And uh, every time, though, when they would go, the horses would approach the battlefield, when they would hear a bomb, bomb, they would start, I think, neighing or screaming. I'm not sure how you would say it, but they would start screaming. That would signal to the other horses to all run back, and they'd go back the other way. So these guys were like, well, we have a problem here. We're not able to get these horses across the, the battlefield. So what if we just cut off their voice box? We just cut off their voice box. That way they can't communicate to one another. So they do that, they cut off the voice box, and they are expecting that when the horses run across the battlefield, they're going to make it all the way across because now they're not communicating to each other. Well, it turns out that when they went across the battlefield, they got a heart attack, and they all died uh, in that regard. So what does that mean? I always think about, okay, what are the implications of this shit? I don't think even even he saw the implications of this. The implications to me are that if you have a population of people that don't know how to communicate themselves – they don't know how to speak when they deal with traumas on a daily basis. Everybody is probably dealing with some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder or the other. But if you don't know how to communicate yourself, you are slowly giving yourself a heart attack in the same way that the you know castrated at the throat horses were uh, when they were put across the battlefield. You're going through a slow path of, of uh, you're going through a path of slow suicide. And uh, and I think learning to communicate yourself to other people is probably the most liberating thing that you can have. When you learn that, you cut the bullshit from your life and you open up the doorway to learning new things. And uh, I think that's the beauty of life is being able to learn. And I, I just don't think I can learn with la- with words like love and freedom and passion. Those words are subjective. I have to use I have to use objective words like reciprocal inhibition contralateral reciprocation lateral tilt medial shift you see what I mean right. these are the kind of words that spawn creativity when I start talking about I make music as well I make a lot of the music for my own videos there's a certain type of language you need to work with when you talk to another producer there's there's things that you have to say if you want this to be communicated well and it has to be objective if you want to get yourself out there and I think how many fitness people are going to tell you this? Learn how to speak, right? Learn how to articulate yourself. With my Here with my master course, I make them get in front of a camera. If they want to get master certified with me, they have to shoot 30 videos uh, where they're explaining themselves. And if they can't, they don't get certified by me, period. That's just yeah. the way it works. I don't like that. I think it's going to make them healthier.
0: And, and am I yeah. correct in understanding that you're referring to the emotional response that your words elicit in the people that are hearing them?
1: No. I mean, what do the words actually mean?
0: Okay.
1: What do they actually mean? It doesn't matter what how people take them. What do they actually because just like you can have objective concepts and subjective concepts, uh, you can have objective words and subjective words. How many people have issues in their relationship because of miscommunications, oh, right? Yeah. How many politicians ride on miscommunications to to keep perpetuating the status quo bullshit that we see throughout throughout our entire existence. It's subjective language, it's the tyranny of words. that uh, that keeps us enslaved into our current way of thinking. I I firmly believe that language is the barrier. It is the barrier. If you can codify your language and actually understand what your words mean, uh, you are gonna open up a whole new world for yourself. It's just very painful. Think about the term love, the word love. What does it mean that it's unconditional? But when you think about love and how One mammal bonds with the other. That love is a selfish mechanism that existed because they realized there was bigger organisms that they had to tackle down together. So even love, in the way that we see it, is actually a selfish mechanism. So therefore, it's not unconditional. It is a conditionality. So therefore, in that regard, we cannot say that love is an objective term. Of course, I'm not. I'm sure you weren't anticipating for me to say something like this. But if you do that, oh my God. It, it will open your. It opens the world to a whole new set of possibilities. You start thinking about things like associative memory in relation to language, associative memory in relation to biomechanics. Uh, also, communicating with other people. When I can establish a language in terms of lateral tilts, medial shifts. If I start thinking about cervical shifts, cervical rotations. Right. When I start discussing things like that, and I use that language, I can then discuss with my colleagues what I need to do, and then they start giving me feedback as to what they're discovering. And then we all develop this. This is science. This is science, right? We're developing. It's a science of communication. Can it happen? And that goes into another thing. Because then if you, let me put it this way: because I've objectively analyzed things like CrossFit. I'm not sure if you've researched anything like that. And I, I kind of have a, uh, a reputation for my
0: uh, my views on CrossFit. Well, what can you share your views on CrossFit just for for people listening?
1: Okay, so. Uh, CrossFit is a is a slap in the face to, to the four million, do- four, four million year evolutionary process. That's what it is. It doesn't re- – it's all linear sagittal plane training. They never train the slings. You, you can't you, – let me put it this way. You can't potentiate a muscle unless it's eccentrically tensioned or concentrically tensioned, unless it's a transverse abdominus, which its only function is abdominal compression, which involves no eccentric or concentric potentiation, at least from what I know, or at least from what I know at this point. It doesn't do that. So unless a muscle is being stretched and contracted in an eccentric or concentric phase, it doesn't just mean that the muscle is being stretched. It means that it's being eccentrically potentiated. So there's still tension on the muscle. And then the out opposite muscle has a concentric tension on it. Then you can't assume that that muscle is getting stimuli. When you look at CrossFit, they don't go through a stretch and contraction of your ribcage. So like if my ribs do this, my, for every way my ribcage rotates, in order for my body to maintain its structure, my pelvis has to go the other way right so because they don't involve any kinds of trunk rotation in their body with what they do which is like they have no crossfit games for throwing or i mean their running looks absolutely dismal when i see them run uh since they don't do anything along these lines it's a slap in the face to human biology we are not lifters and the testing that they even employ if they want to call what they do a sport the testing that they employ isn't even realistic to the demands that you face in everyday life when you are reacting to a lion it's it, that's it's a different thing. That's, that's a reactive component. You are reacting to another organism. You can have an Ironman athlete running, you know, as, as far as they do, and swimming as far as they do, and riding a bike. But if I put them in a boxing ring with somebody who knows how to box, who goes in there, that Ironman is going to gas out because in relation to that environment, their their uh, their cardiovascular system and their muscles and their their fascial neuromyofascial web, their responses. Are, they're not used to that environment. So if I put a CrossFitter into any other sport, they're not going to respond well. People are assuming that just because you work out that somehow there's going to be a transference to that. Like I, I myself worked out with a guy named uh, John X Alves. He's a kickboxer. Uh, I would say he's probably the best striking coach on the planet. I've been working with fighters. I've seen a lot of striking coaches out there, and the guy is a, is a fucking genius. And so I, I worked with this guy. One day we, when he, I had him training me, we were hitting the pads. He already saw that I know how to hit pads. I know how to box. I already know how to do this. So he skipped me along the path and said, you're at the, the sparring stage. So we went into sparring. And uh, the first day I went in there, I was doing all my metabolic conditioning. I was doing workouts way harder than CrossFit, way more difficult, more metabolically taxing. There's a video if you go on my YouTube channel called uh, uh, Watch Me Workout Till I Puke. And, uh, and so if you, you can see that one, there's no way a crossfitter would pull anything like that off. So I was working out hard. I was in I was chiseled, ripped hard from granite. And here's this 42, 43 year old Filipino dude. We're sparring and we're going about six, seven rounds straight, three minutes, 30 seconds. And uh, we're going on for, for a while and, uh, we're going six, seven rounds straight. I'm just completely dying by six, seven rounds. And this guy, it looks like he, he's sweating, but he's not even breathing heavy at all. Finally, he gives me a break at, at about round eight. And uh, from there, we make it all the way to 12 rounds. We spar for 12 rounds. And I mean, finally, by the end of it, I started understanding the concept of movement economy, movement efficiency, and uh, which was very revealing to me. But it was especially revealing to me when I found out that he sparred 15 more rounds later that same day with professional fighters. And uh, wow. he barely works out. He barely even trains. And that's where I – that lesson to me was, okay, honestly, man, I'll tell you point blank. I work out in terms of actual – the movements that you see at FP – Uh, I work out maybe twice a month and I've been doing that for like the last three years, three, about three and a half years. I barely exercise. Is my training preparing me for any scenario possible, whether it's reactively, is it helping me? Is it preparing me for the scenario? Is it psychologically preparing me? Is it metabolically preparing me? These are the questions that uh, that I think uh, people need to ask themselves when it comes to their training. Is this even preparing me? And when I look at the CrossFit games, There is no preparation. There's no economy of motion. None of those movements themselves relate to how humans adapted or how if you're going to go play basketball or go run a few miles, that doesn't relate at all. There is no relation. So looking at CrossFit, even as a sport, I can't even see it legitimate. In regards to functionality, it is way outside the, the spectrums of that. There is no way that you can take a bar and put it on your back. You can't put a bar on your neck and then tell somebody, Okay, uh, this is functional for a human being. The spine was not meant to have an axial load on it. You're not meant to to put that much weight on your neck and then smash your thoracic vertebra, smash your lumbar vertebra, and then push weight upward. The body was not meant for this. We are not lifters. We are slingers. We are throwers. We are runners. That's what we did. When you're in nature, you're not carrying 200 pounds on your back. You're not carrying 300 pounds on your back. You're walking. You're nomadic. If you're nomadic, and that's what human beings have been for most of their existence, you don't have time to be lifting really, really heavy. And if you look at CrossFit, what is it? They're lifting heavy. They're doing all these dynamic movements in the sagittal plane. They're doing movements that just don't respect biology. I think CrossFit is just a big slap in the face to human functionality, if if you want me to be completely honest, which that's all I can be. I think it's terrible on human bodies. I think it's extremely dishonest that they sell what they sell as functional training. And uh, for people like me, it's very difficult because I always have that conversation Oh, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I do integrated movement. Oh, you mean like CrossFit? Okay, now i got to find out new, find new words to describe what I do because if I use the term integrated movement, they'd be like, well, yeah, CrossFit does integrated movement. I'm like, yes, it does do integrated movement, but it doesn't potentiate the slings at the pelvis and rib cage. And I know that doesn't seem important to you, but my God, in the next 10 years, everybody's going to be like, how the fuck did you not see this? You get what I mean?
0: Yeah, like, absolutely. So someone listening and they're resonating with what you're saying – they want to start with one of your programs or one of your um, in-person trainings. Where's, where's the best place for someone? Do you have a program or do they jump right to working with you in person?
1: Well, the, the way I normally recommend it, man, is you go the power of posture is going to be the first thing where you want to start. If you don't have intra-abdominal pressure, if you don't know how to stand correctly or even decode your dysfunction, just barely at a standing level, you're not anchoring yourself from a new place to recreate tension. Okay, So you're not anchoring yourself at all. Uh, number two, uh, you have this uh, a program that I call the Human Foundations. Uh, the Human Foundation System is pretty much that. It's teaching you how to foundationally become a better human with your movement. Uh, all the little there's like a lot of little details that come into that. Um, that's kind of like an extension of the the Power of Posture. After that, I have a program called the Training for Humans Workout System, and that one goes step by step. It's the testing protocols. I look at level. There's a level one. Level two, level three, level four, level five. There's five levels of training. And if you make it to the fifth level, it's odds are you're going to be moving a lot better. Um, Since I I have to, I'm still going to update these programs in the coming years. I just need to, I need to codify what I'm doing a lot more because this shit gets really, really, really complicated, man. So, um, but if if people can follow those protocols, they'll have a better understanding intrinsically of what I'm actually trying to do, which is again, uh, it's trying to create a new kind of healthy human. What I would define as a healthy human, I don't think people in our culture are necessarily that healthy because they're not very adaptable. I measure everything by adaptability. If you are not adaptable psychologically, and you're not adaptable physiologically or uh, biomechanically in this world, then you're not healthy. Yeah. Uh, that's the way I see it. So that's what these this, what these programs were designed to do. That was the the foundation of the program, and uh, the people who use them they give me rave reviews, man. They're really happy with the stuff.
0: So. You just reminded me of a quote I heard from uh, George St. Pierre a few years ago, and he was talking about the the Megalodon and how it was the most, the largest, fiercest predator ever to roam the earth, land or sea. And it was this just massive shark that, uh, but the problem was the Megalodon went extinct. So how could the most badass predator to ever roam the earth go extinct? Well, it was inefficient. It had so much mass. It required so much food to survive. As soon as it hit a period of scarcity, it wasn't able to yeah. withstand. And he uses a similar metaphor with MMA fighters and athletes and just human beings in general is that it's, it's an efficiency. Does every ounce of muscle on your body serve a purpose or is it aesthetics? And, and Because if it's aesthetics, you're moving from functionality to basically being inefficient and mass that requires lots of energy and it may be, even be from an evolutionary perspective part of the reason that women are less attracted to giant bodybuilders than guys that have the brad pitt fight club body
1: there's a potential for that i don't know if women want to be suffocated that much by this big gorilla right where they can't breathe i don't know but yeah. that's what i what i've heard from my buddies but uh, <laughs> but even extending into that whole concept of uh of uh you know efficiency people are so gung-ho about how do i increase my metabolism to burn more calories is that really what you want to do or do you want to slow down your metabolism? Should your body be longing for nutrition at all times or should it be asking for less? Guess what the separation between us and the Neanderthals were? I think the Neanderthals, I think, because it's been a while, I think it was anywhere between thirty-five to 3,500 to 5,000 calories that they needed every day to subsist. So all they spent their time doing was hunting. Whereas we're humans, we can live off of a very, very low amount of food, very low source of food. If you look at Unfortunately, people in Africa, they're living on very few calories per day and they're still surviving, you know? So people are concerned with, okay, I need to increase my metabolism. My concern is not necessarily increasing my metabolism. That's that's, my body should be demanding less food. I think about lowering my metabolism. So it's like, I think even going to to that extension, it's like, should you really need that much fuel? But if your neuromyofascial web is helping you and you have this... Rubber band propelling you into your movement. How much metabolic demand do you need if your muscles aren't propelling your movement and instead it's your fascia propelling your movement?
0: Yeah. Some I, things I, to think about, you know? I completely agree. I think so many people are so far removed from the natural order of their metabolism in their body that they're hungry all the time, perhaps because they've got blood sugar dysregulation or gut dysfunction or some of these other underlying health issues. So then they're trying to compensate for that. Rather than looking at the root cause of why they're hungry all the time, they're trying to exercise harder. So they start doing these crazy, insane workouts or CrossFit, then they're getting hurt.
1: It sounds like to me that you've had to deal with this working with people, right?
0: (laughs) Here and there, yes
1: bam. It's, whenever you actually go into the practical field of having to do this, you understand the pain of it where you're like, you know, you get a client on a caloric deficit, which every high level industry leader always talks about, you know, uh, you know, you got to, if you just put people on a calories in versus calories out diet, they're going to end up losing body fat. I've had clients who follow that shit to the T and they would not drop any more body fat. Or they even would gain stuck.
0: weight.
1: Or even potentially that as well. So it's yeah. like even gaining muscle mass. So it's like, you can, you, If you're trying to even gain weight, even then you still don't, don't do that. They don't ever consider, you know, is your body even at an optimal state to actually produce the anabolic hormones to either gain muscle or metabolize body fat? Very few people are considering that. And I, this is part of the reason I have a, a particular disdain for CrossFit because what's their mentality of it? They ignore the autonomic nervous system. They ignore things along those lines, and this is part of what's destroying a lot of pe- human bodies right now. It's a trend. I think it's a I think it's a dying trend right now. From what I'm seeing out here in Seattle, you don't see that many CrossFit facilities anymore. From what I heard, there were a lot more, but they're starting to fall apart because I think kind of you're going to end up seeing the diminishing diminishing returns from partaking in things like that and your results are only going to go so far or you're just going to regress back to for one being in pain because your body your body biomechanically can't tolerate that stuff and then two your physiology can't take that much catabolism. You're training at a high athlete level th- 365 days a year, when most athletes have an off season, right? Yeah. There's an off season to that kind of shit. People don't realize it, but yet they're still working out like maniacs 365 days a year. Or so yeah, or not maybe not that much, but they're working out a lot.
0: Uh, absolutely, I completely agree. Last question, I appreciate you being so generous with your time too. It's uh, sure. you've shared a lot of awesome stuff. Have you learned anything from Conor McGregor, and if so, what?
1: Conor McGregor has fantastic intra-abdominal pressure. If he didn't have that, he would not be able to do what he's doing at this given point. So I, in, terms of, uh, in terms of what I've learned from him, uh, I mean, I can't say I really learned that much more from him other than Muhammad Ali. It almost seems like an, like a, like an updated version of Muhammad Ali. I, I studied a lot of Muhammad Ali. I have studied a lot of his fight. I mean, that's how I, that's how I know what I know, man. I've watched – I'm no bullshit. I've watched tens of thousands of hours of fights. I have watched – That's just how I learned FB was watching tens of thousands of hours of fights. And then you recognize patterns. You find out which ones are functional, which ones do you institute into a fighter. And, uh, and then which ones are the ones that make the fighter successful or not. You test things and then you realize, you know, you send a fighter into sparring, you test something to try and get the fighter to react a certain way. They go into sparring and they get the shit kicked out of them. And you're like, Oh man, what did I do wrong? Or they go into a fight they get the up And you're like, okay, back to the drawing board. Cause I, I run into the assumption that I'm responsible for my fighter. My fighter is not responsible for himself. It's up to me to change the fighter. So if they don't perform the way that I want them to, it's always back to the drawing board. I need to, to figure uh, something out. But um, going back to the whole thing in terms of what I learned from him, I would say it's, it's more of a verification of what makes a fighter great. I think there's some pivotal flaws within his structure that there's a, a lumbar hyperextension and a, and a, and a pelvic uh, hyperextension. That's going to to end up being his issue. I think he needs to uh, eventually get that movement down. I think a guy like Frankie Edgar, who has a little bit more of of a structural base of support, uh, I think that may be the kind of style that that, uh, that may expose his movement at some point or the other because he has fantastic movement, but it's still long. You don't see a lot of long combinations when he throws punches. He kind of throws a one-two, and then there's nothing really to follow it up. He'll throw a snap kick. Nothing follows it up. He'll throw a spinning wheel kick. Or whatever, but nothing follows it up. Whereas if you look at like a Frankie Edgar, he'll throw a four-piece combo to a low kick straight into a into a blast double. He'll go straight into all in combination. And I think those are the types of things. Those are the kinds of movements that he doesn't have. I don't think that's that's uh, present within him. But my opinions of him, mine is that he's a freaking beast. I personally, you can't help but I think if you don't like the guy, you love the guy. I think he's you're an asshole. I think you gotta love his tenacity, his his willingness to take risks, his willingness to uh, to speak his mind, and really, you actually, I don't think it's a game. I don't think it's an act. What he's putting on when he says what he says, I think it's based upon. For me, if you, I have a reputation of being in the fitness industry. I tend to borrow ideas from Muhammad Ali or Floyd Mayweather in terms of you know calling out other systems, for what they are, you know, where you call them out for weaknesses. You know, I think the guy is a prodigy. I think he would have become great with any camp, any trainer. I think he, I think he, he's just a freak. I think when you see somebody like that, he's just a freak. He's he's one of the few fighters that's very cerebral about probably everything he does in his life. And I mean, he's kind of like a Tommy Hearn a southpaw Tommy Hearns, um, mixed with Anderson Silva. Is kind of what I get out of a, out of a, a Conor McGregor. So I just I see people from the past and how he's kind of like culminated out of certain people from the past that I know he's probably watched. And uh, and that's why you see him for what he is. So. There's a video on YouTube. If you guys look up, it's if you look up a man taking away food from a cheetah, right? So they're taking food away from a cheetah and there's these cheetahs right there. They just get done killing an Impala. And there's these two people that come in with these sticks, there's whacking sticks on the ground and whatnot. And they go in there and they take the food away from the cheetahs. There's just two guys with two sticks. These cheetahs would have mangled these dudes. No problem at all. These cheetahs with these huge claws would have killed them, but the cheetahs were scared of these sticks. It was all a diversion. It was all psychology that they were playing. They were just going in there. The humans were psyching them out with these sticks. And so uh, they, psycho, they, they psych them out with the sticks, take the food. And the lesson that I gathered there is like when McGregor is doing all this shit, he's got a hammer in his fucking hand for one. It's not like he's a, it's not like he's a, the, the human with the stick. But I think a, a, a great part of what he does, I think a big part of what he does, is he he gets into people's heads. He makes them think that he's, a, a, let's say, a 3,000-pound gorilla. When he's still a human being and that he's beatable, but he because he psychologically dominates them so bad, he turns himself into this three thousand pound gorilla, and that's what's gonna I think help prolong his career. Um, I think Anderson Silva kind of had a similar thing for a while. I think Anderson Silva uh, he was doing the same thing, and then Chris Weidman saw him as a human, and when he saw him as a human, you saw Anderson Silva lose like crazy. So I think that's uh, I think when I when I look at uh, Conor McGregor, I think what he's doing is is uh, is it's textbook, you know. Uh, psychological domination is what you see and i think it's, it's fun to watch i think
0: it's, it's fucking exciting to watch you've seen at the press conference connor and nate and nate's inability to verbally articulate himself contrasted with connor it, it, it's it's such a it's such a dichotomy and you can see the frustration pooling over in in nate until he eventually just resorts to dropping f-bombs <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: but, but even then there's some shit that nate says uh
0: the, the the touch butt? Uh, yeah the <laughs> touch butt <laughs> with the guy with the ponytail
1: <laughs> oh my god bro because that's exactly what I what
0: I saw it naughty this this has been awesome man you're uh, you're a lot of fun and um, you're loaded you're an encyclopedic <laughs> a knowledge base of, of fitness and and functional information if people want to work with you one on one they want to go to some of your intensives how do they go about doing that.
1: Uh, I myself am not really that available. Like I'm doing this master course right now that I'm going to be traveling out to, uh, to Europe. I'll be out there for about a month doing seminars and then I'm going to come back. I'll probably be taking, I- I'll probably be working with athletes and whatnot. So I myself, am not really available too often, but I have a lot of people who have been certified through FB. I put them through the ringer. If you're certified through me, uh, you've probably had to go through some shit to get cert- certified by me. I don't, I don't just give my, uh, I don't give out F- FP info to just anybody. You have to really, really earn it. So I have people that are certified through through Functional Patterns. If you just go to the Functional Patterns Facebook or the website, if you go to training at functionalpatterns.com, or if you're looking for, to train here in Seattle, if somebody's around here in Seattle, um, I have a, a four four uh, FP Master Certified trainers right there, uh, certified in what I do. They're monsters, and uh, and they're available. So if you email Seattle at functionalpatterns.com you'll be able to get in contact with somebody in terms of training with me. It's hard, man, because I do a lot of traveling and I'm, and I'm usually doing a lot of marketing and then I have other side projects that I'm working on. So I'm not as available. I still do train people. Um, but it's, it's sparing, man. It's, I want to get back. My, my whole goal is that I do get back into training. I want to start training clients again and not doing so many seminars because I want to get back in the laboratory and fixing people. But, um, if, other than that, I have a bunch of people all over. I have people in London, Germany, uh, Lebanon, Australia, uh, Brazil, where the hell else? Uh, we got people in uh, Venezuela, Spain. We got people all over the place that are certified through FP. So it's we got them out there. If you just if you guys just shoot us a message at training at functionalpatterns.com, we can direct you to somebody somewhere across the world who's doing this. So at this point, this is this is spread into a whole hell of a lot of areas. Uh, Italy, everywhere. It's it's we're, it's kind of a, a worldwide thing right now. So if you if you're looking for somebody, you might be able to find somebody hopefully within a few hours driving distance depending on where you're at but like it's just in london alone i think i have i think it'll be three or four people in london alone that are that are out there certified through fb so if if you can get training with me you'll get training with somebody that's been trained by me and i i assure you i put them through the ringer to get certified by me
0: awesome brother awesome well i've had a blast i really appreciate your time (laughs) i thank you and um, I, I have a feeling we could have probably talked for hours and, and gone down a number of different rabbit holes.
1: Hell yeah, for sure, bro. <laughs> I
0: appreciate cool. it, Anthony.
1: Thank you Thanks very for much for the time, brother.
0: Thank you, Nadi. This episode is brought to you by Prove It, Keto OS Exogenous Ketones. Now, many of you know that when you fast for – around 24 hours, or you follow a ketogenic diet, your body starts to produce ketones in the form of beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Now, we don't need to go into too much nerd speak, but what is really cool about Prove-It Keto OS, exogenous ketones, is that you're able to get these same energy-producing ketone molecules in a drink form, and it's a delicious drink form that tastes like chocolate or orange dreamsicle, and these energy-producing molecules improve mental clarity, they improve oxygen utilization during exercise, and have a whole host of other benefits. You can get them charged with a little bit of caffeine for an extra lift if you tolerate caffeine, or you can get them without caffeine if you are sensitive to stimulants. I've also found them incredibly helpful in bridging the gap as the body transitions into a state of ketosis and making that whole shift a little bit more tolerable. So I have found them to be very, very helpful. A lot of my clients love them. Just be a little careful if you are sensitive to dairy um, starting out. But besides that, they're amazing and they're coming out with a dairy-free option very, very soon. So to learn more about them, go to biohacks.com. Prove It, P-R-U-V-I-T-NOW.com, and they have a free $14 or $15 sampler pack that you can get and see if they're a good fit for you. I use them just about every single day, and that website, one more time, is biohacksp dot This episode is brought to you by IVME Wellness and Performance Center in Chicago, my go-to resource for a number of biohacks, including the UVLRX Intravenous Light Therapy Machine and the Myers Cocktail Intravenous Vitamins. The UVLRX delivers multiple wavelengths of light directly into the bloodstream and has been shown to increase oxygen deliverability. Clean pathogens in the blood like viruses, bacteria, molds, fungi, and parasites, and much, much more. The end result is you feel more alert, you have decreased inflammation, more energy, and a number of other benefits, and that is why it is being used by everyone from clients dealing with Lyme's disease to professional athletes on the Chicago Cubs, Blackhawks, Bears, Bulls, so on and so forth. The Myers cocktail delivers vitamins like vitamin C, vitamin B12, vitamin B6, magnesium, and a few others directly into the bloodstream, which bypasses some of the absorption issues that can occur in gut dysbiosis when there is compromised digestion in an individual. And on top of that, it has been shown to optimize nutrient status, increase energy, improve oxygen utilization again, and a number of other desired effects. My clients and I have experienced some powerful phase shifts by combining these two biohacks along with a few others. And IVMe is the place where we do it. So if you're in Chicago and you're looking to check out the UVLRX, the Myers cocktail, or any of their other intravenous therapy options, check out IVMe on Wells in Chicago.